to Brews with Andrews, the Lancelot Andrews podcast. Thank you for downloading and listening as we discuss one of his works, as well as what he has to say about the challenges facing our churches today in this world that seems to get darker and darker and more and more insane by the minute. So go ahead, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and let's dive in. Enjoying our brews with Andrews. I'm Father Alan. I'm Father Michael. I am having All Hallows Treat. It's an imperial chocolate peanut butter stout. Um, It's a little high on the gravity side of 7.6, so I will have to sip it a little slow. But... All Hallows Treat is the theme who we're going for right here because this is the brew you're supposed to have after you've conquered death. As we celebrate, <laughs> we're, getting ready to, we're getting ready to knock that sucker we're out. I hit it, so this is what I'm having. And I'm just boring old Father Michael with my Guinness beer. <laughs> and what have you got, Andrew? I've got an overly friendly IPA. For once you've overcome death... And you enter into life on the other side, we're just all friends at that point. <laughs> so, and it's from Holy City Brewing. Well, hey, you so got that cover. Yeah. yeah, so today we dive in to Lancelot Andrews' sermon, which could easily be titled, and I wish it was, What the Hell? <laughs> we go to Isaiah 63. Yeah. Let, me, let me just, before we even get started... Think of a priest today in today's church. And this was given, this is an Easter Day sermon. Mm-hmm. April 13, 1623. There you go. And the priest today would say, well, let's do the sermon on Isaiah 63. <laughs> you would not find him anywhere. <laughs> you had, has this come up at any of your Easter services that you can remember? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I've never heard it once, that's for sure. It's a different day and age. I don't think Andrews would pass our modern seminaries, homiletics classes, because he gets a little too close to allegory. You know, (laughs) heaven forbid. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. This is it to set the theme. And this sermon, unlike some of Andrews' sermons, stays on track. So it was easy to summarize. Here is how I would summarize it. Andrews uses the imagery of wine presses in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3, to first speak about Christ's victory over the kingdom of demons and death, Edom, along with the capital city, Hell, Basra, by his passion and resurrection. And then, to emphasize the benefits that Christ offers to his people, who accept the great exchange won, namely, that of God becoming man, so man can be able to become God, or in theological terms, man's deification, theosis, by grace. That's a lot to cover from Isaiah 63, and I gotta admit, the first time I read Isaiah 63, didn't catch any of this. So it just went. (laughs) I think everyone can benefit from this sermon because it is a great step and beginning to see Jesus in the Old Testament as all the patristics did. Absolutely. And uh, if it's there, it's there. 
And uh, even when I was younger, I tell the story that I'd read some things, and to me, well, obviously that's Jesus. <laughs> and uh, yeah, for so many people, they look at it and they see nothing. Have eyes and see nothing. I think we've heard that before. So it is. It's, it's laid out there for you. Well, set the tone. I'll, I'll read Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3 from the ESV. Here's the passage, and I'm curious if you hear Jesus when you first hear it. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Who do you think it is? Happy, <laughs> happy Easter! <laughs> Andrews begins this sermon with some introductory remarks. Because, as we've already said, it's not natural to pick a resurrection sermon out of the Old Testament. <laughs> he takes us, as his, in his introduction, to the book of Acts. And he remarks how, if we honestly look at Isaiah 63, um, we can see that it's just like many passages in Isaiah, like Isaiah 53, which, of course, is where... Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. And, you know, after the spirit tells Philip to get up and go, and he bumps into this guy, and he's like, so what you doing? Well, I'm trying to read this passage in Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, and who, who would understand this? Who is this guy? Right, and so Philip, of course, goes, um, it's Jesus. And Andrew says, you know, this passage is just as easily pointed to as that passage to say, this is Jesus. Um, Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus's passion, whereas Isaiah 63, these verses speak of his resurrection. And he takes it, and if that's not a adequate sales pitch for seeing Jesus in this passage, he takes us back to Isaiah, the chapter immediately before this passage, which context is always an important thing to do, he takes us to Isaiah 62, 11, where it tells us, Behold, here comes your Savior. And of course, our passage, a few verses later, says, Who is this who comes? Uh, it's your Savior. And who else is Savior but Jesus? But it does start to change as we move into this sermon because he does start applying it to Easter day. Because as he would say, this passage from Isaiah 63 is fulfilled on Easter day. Because he, Jesus, who was crucified and buried in his passion, was not left in hell. That is Psalm 1610, um, or should we say Basra. And he was brought back from the deep of the earth. Psalm 71, 20, that is from Edom. And this is how he sets the stage and introduces 
all believers to begin seeing Jesus as the one who is coming. And then he takes us through the passage and says, there's two questions. Who is this? And why are you covered in red? And the two big questions. And so, and, he, and again, he's painting the picture for us to say, as we read here and we hear this dialogue going back and forth, we shouldn't be thinking, namely, only the historical event of the book of Isaiah, but we should be thinking of its fulfillment, and we should be understanding that Isaiah here is having a conversation with the promised Christ. And this is one of the things, and I've said this before, that, uh, uh, and you mentioned the picture he draws. Uh, what first got me attached to Andrews, and uh, he's really, part of these writings are really because I'm, I'm a priest today, uh, but he, he paints that picture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and you read it and you go, oh, <laughs> I've never heard this before. And yet it's all there when you read it. And that's the reason when you read it and uh, read Andrews, most sermons I probably have to read it three or four times. This one I've probably done five or six times trying to, to get all the, the meat that is in there uh, to support uh, the claim of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So mm-hmm. it, uh, he does, he paints a picture beautifully. Yeah, so. it's um, as we think of Jesus's conversation where he says, is it Abraham saw my day and couldn't wait for it? Yeah. Um, Andrews is saying Isaiah sees the day and is having a conversation with the risen Christ, really looking forward to the day that Christ would be victorious over, um, well, death and hell. Mm-hmm. So when the prophet asks this question, who is this? Well, it's the one who speaks righteousness and it's the one who is mighty to save. In hindsight, that's pretty easy to pinpoint Jesus. And then the prophet asked the question, why are you covered in red? (laughs) And Andrew says something genius here because it's right there in the text. He emphasizes the wine press, but then he sees and understands that there were two parts of the wine pressing in this that summarizes Jesus's ministry on earth. There's the winepress of redemption, redemption, where I have trodden alone, essentially where Jesus was pressed. And then there's the winepress of vengeance, I will tread them down, where Jesus then did the pressing. Um, and I, it is so uh, helpful. Yeah, the first, uh, the redemption, is, is like, I was the grape. I was the one that was squashed and murdered and killed and... Uh, but out of that, what's really great is comes wine, and we still receive wine at the Holy Eucharist. He doesn't really get into that, but I just oh, that really jump. It's he, he gets in. Yeah, not like you would expect Andrews to. Do. Yeah, well, yeah, he's really he can get a little carried away with presenting Christ in the Eucharist in some of his sermons, and there was plenty of fuel for the fodder here, but he doesn't take it. He just states it as a matter of fact. Right. I guess it's because it's Resurrection Sunday. Folks have already done midnight vigils and masses. and He's already preached too, sir. He's already (laughs) preached. Just stating the facts. And what causes this conversation in the text to take place is 
the prophet is noticing that this, this stranger, who is our salvation to come, his appearance does not fit, and that the way he is walking is not the casual walk of anyone coming back from Basra. Well, he's got, what's it, some marching. Yeah, and that we'll talk about the language there. there it's, I think that's where Andrews shows his genius as a translator and an interpreter of Scripture because he catches on to what that word really means but then doesn't actually have to create his own translation right. to make his point of view. And so we'll get into that. And because the, the, our person in our text responds that he's been on a conquest in Edom and had a victory in Basra. And this is good news for Isaiah, since Edom was one of the worst enemies of God's people. You know, do you have anywhere where uh, the quote from uh, Malachi 1.4, I've yeah. got my so many notes. Can you pull it up, Andrew? Oh, well, I've got it here. Oh, I was going uh, And he mentions Edom. And uh, when you look it up in 1.4, it says, uh, calls Edom the border of all wickedness, a people with whom God was angry forever. Basically, God's anger is eternal, uh, which the smoke of whose torments will ascend forever, the enemies of our souls, against whom the anger of God is eternal. And, uh, so if your address is in Basra, you should be looking for new real estate. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> and with that, I think that is, that's all he uses to, all, there's plenty there, <laughs> to introduce our passage so that when we hear this passage read and hinted to, we hear two parties speaking, the prophet and his savior, which was Jesus Christ. And again, that would not pass in modern homiletic courses. <laughs> but because Andrews values the faith once delivered, he will use the patristic model of allegory, where it maintains the unity between the Old and New Testament. He didn't have to worry about being published. He just who, who was going to correct him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a, it's a very valid way to look at prophecy as... Because most of the time you see the prophets receive a vision, and it's of a future event, to prophesize, to predict a future event, but it rarely is ever a vision of as it's literally going to happen. Right. Usually it's, it's symbolic, it's symbolism, but it is a future event that will happen, and so that's what he sees here. He sees Christ uh, not literally walking out of the tomb with a stone rolled away, right. but he sees the symbolic form of Christ which explains what he did in imagery yeah. for us. Yeah, and why he did it when he gets in. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's in Lancelot Andrews, The Preacher by Nicholas Lasky. That's exactly what he said. One of the things that Andrews does, especially for our day and age, which is needed more than ever because we're all a bunch of Epicureans that don't understand the spiritual world, much less a spiritual reading of Scripture, he says Andrews is showing you how to do it par excellence how to safely read through and interpret your Old Testament to see Jesus um, there. To see the new. What Andrews does here in this passage is he's emphasizing the spiritual or mystical meaning of the text, distinguished from the literal or historical meaning. And anyone who's gone through a modern seminary training 
You will have a day dedicated to the dangers of using that dangerous word, allegory. Because there's just no control on allegorizing. And we, we know people like Origen used allegory. And read one of his sermons. That dude was a nutcase. So you don't want to do it. That's seminary training. And then you read Andrews and says he had no problem with it. Yeah. And obviously, Jesus himself is a pretty good standard <laughs> uh, <laughs> for reading Scripture. And Andrews shows us how to take this, and he enters into a classic example of how to do allegory. He even uses the key terms of, like, here, I will give you the spiritual kernel of this. And Lonsky says, this is what you need. In it, what we see, I got a star here, and I'm going to give up on Lasky, is Andrews recaptures the spirit of the great preaching of the periods when the distinction between the senses of Scripture had not yet become a simple school exercise, but remained essentially a Christological reading of the figures of the Old Testament. Hallelujah. I mean... Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean. Is, we've made so much of Christianity a schoolboy exercise instead of just relishing in the robustness that is Jesus in Old and New Testament. And so Lasky says, this is where you turn... This is the sermon you turn to if you want to see it. Is that... Were there two Loskys? Was there a father and a... Was there a junior too? You know, if you listen back to our former episodes, I think you've asked that question on three of them. <laughs> have I? Okay. I don't know the answer. Oh, well, I figured you'd figure it out by <laughs> I probably would have, but I keep choosing these high-gravity beers, and it makes it hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I just realized this is somebody else than who I'm thinking of. I've, you guys keep talking about Lasky, and I'm picturing Vladimir Lasky, the... Russian Orthodox. <laughs> yeah. I was like, why is he writing a book on <laughs> well, Lancelot Andrews? And this, this is this this early 19 or 1900s? No, um, maybe. But you're in straight. This is this book by Andrew Lasky shows how this is a, a rabbit trail. I apologize. Um, but needed. What Lasky highlights here is how Andrews. We typically think of Ang- the Anglican Church as somewhere in between the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church. That via media. Right. What Lasky shows through Andrew's sermons is that he's actually more in between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. So your instincts of going the Orthodox, this is the book shows that the via media is actually in between Rome and the East. Mm-hmm. And so your instincts are right. Um, that's, that is what he's showing. He has synthesized sermons with that agenda to show that we're actually in between the Eastern and Western church, mm-hmm. which is probably fair because once you get to the Protestant side of the world, this is where preaching becomes very academic and less mystical. Mm-hmm. And the Easterns had no problems being mystical. And so Andrew is right in the middle of that school. Yeah. I mean, I think you can make the claim that that kind of started with the Roman Catholics, like Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, you know... And he taught in England, I think. I'm yeah, yeah, I think Aquinas definitely mm-hmm. nailed down all the loose boards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Only, to, <laughs> only to return to a mystical faith at mm-hmm. the end. Like, you can't put it into the words. There's, but you got to try. And yep. here, this is the passage where... You'll, you'll find it in his sermon where he says, When you hear Edom, 
when you hear Basra, <laughs> you should be hearing that we are talking about death and hell itself. Again, the church today is in a, a weird conundrum. We've come through years of bad preaching on hell, and we now live in an age where no one believes hell exists. So we don't have any solid conversations about what the hell. And this passage is a good place to start um, because Jesus conquered it. And I think as I was meditating this morning, I think Jesus' mission to liberate man from death and hell and all the powers and principalities um, was, was so advantageous and it changed the world forever. But instead of people using their freedom now to serve him and the true God, um, they just started serving themselves. How we've gone from an overly spiritually oppressive world to like a spiritual vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got here, let us compare spiritual things with spiritual things. That is, it must do us good. So he would dig in. <laughs> he, he digs in and shows us where we can dig in on Scripture. He straights up. As Jesus was never in Basra physically, we must look to this spiritual meaning and its fulfillment. And, and you say, well, you can't do that. And Andrew says, well, take that up with St. John the Divine's book of Revelation, where in Revelation eleven eight he says that there is a spiritual Sodom and Egypt where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem had become a spiritual Sodom and Egypt. And so I'm telling you, this is our faith. This is what we've inherited, and I'm going to keep going. And he presents now that Edom symbolizes the kingdom of darkness and death because of their wickedness, envy, rancor, and insulting over men in misery. And that's... He goes, gives us several examples of their wickedness, of their envy, and their spirituality of misery loves company. And he, he's even got here that there is a spiritual Sodom in Egypt where mm-hmm. our Lord was crucified. And if they, why not a spiritual Edom too, mm-hmm. whence our Lord rose again, put all three together, Egypt, Babel, uh, Edom, all their enemies are all nothing to be, are nothing to the hatred that hell bears for us. But if you ask which of the three was the worst, that was Edom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, we, we live in an age where we can, we will bend our ethics just simply to give someone the benefit of the doubt. I right. mean, our culture today can, I mean, we have TV episodes dedicated to the romanticizing of murder. And see, the murderer was just misunderstood. If he had you got to understand. Been, and when you read scripture, Edom is that culture. And they say there's no sugarcoating it. There's no way to romanticize it. Humanity can enter into a state of existing that is nothing but evil. Love it or hate it, don't pretend. It's just what it is. And I I forgot how bad Edom was till our morning prayers last week or the week before took us through rereading about good old Doeg. Doeg, And that dude, 
Man. He's sort of falling up. He's got hell for all that naught is, that if the power of darkness and hell itself, if they be to be expressed any place on earth, they cannot be any better expressed than this Edom and Basra. Yeah, well... This is the pit. This is, well, I'm definitely, the, by the time you just mentioned Basra, that is the pit. I mean, it yeah. symbolizes hell itself. It is the seat of the Prince of Darkness. He, uh, it's the strongest, as it is the strongest hold and city of the kingdom of Edom, um, and as well as a great walled-in seat of power. Right. Now we understand what Jesus was doing those three, de- three days. He had gone and stormed some gates. Mm -hmm. The harrowing of hell, as we would say on this side of it all. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, the prophet didn't have an understanding of that. He just sees sees the Savior coming back. Victoria, what you been doing? You don't look right. And we get this explanation. He had been on a great conquest and mission to defeat the kingdom of darkness and death as well as hell itself. And we got foretaste of that in David's ministry, but then we see the fullness of it in David's son's ministry, Jesus, and his conquering. He did this in his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Andrew says. And it is shocking, even in the New Testament. Just like the prophet says, who's this coming back from over there in Edom? Everyone in the New Testament is asking the same questions. I mean... Mary at the grave, you know, looking at the gardener going, who are you? You got the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, who are you? It's New Testament fulfillment all around. And it's just glorious to, you know, relax and meditate upon. And that is his introduction to spiritual reading of the Old Testament. (laughs) And now we get into the meat of the exegesis. So he's introduced the passage of Isaiah 63, how Christians should be like Philip and seeing Jesus all through it, and now presented how you can read this spiritually, legitimately, and understand Jesus's mission, because he was the one that came back from these places, victorious. And he comes into questioning who is this? And we get into the two titles that are used to answer the question, who is this? We know it's Jesus. We know he's been dead. We know he's been in hell. And now he's back on earth, walking back. Wait, what? Nobody does that. Who is this? And the answer, as we heard read, the one speaking righteousness and the one Mighty to save. Sounds like Jesus to me, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a pretty good bet. I just love it because it's got the serpent's head in it. <laughs> it goes, he loosened the pains of hell, trod upon the serpent's head, and all to bruise it, took from death his sting, from hell his victory. Tell it, brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be fair... When the prophet asks, who is this? Just give me a name. Like, you know, like Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Um, <laughs> well, you couldn't give him his name because I wouldn't be given until the angel said, I didn't know what his name was. Yeah, well, that's fair, too. 
right. So when he's asked, he's just, well, you know, the one speaking in righteousness and the one's mighty to save. So is is as the New Testament preaches on multiple sections, we have to be faithful in word and deed. Here is our Savior in word and in deed. And we he kind of as you look at these, we see office of priest and office of king, and he he's both word of salvation and work of salvation. Andrews is kind of giving us a two-columned approach of showing you how these two titles, mm-hmm. the one that speaks righteousness and the one who is mighty to save, really just spells out the full office of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you take everything that's described here, and then all of a sudden we come to the book of Matthew and the angel says... Oh, if you're curious about what his name's to be, it's Jesus, because he saves his people from their sins. You go, oh, because that's immediately connect. It's been spelled out very beautifully um, here in Isaiah 63. (laughs) What that means. And even the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to know that Yahweh knows how to strut. (laughs) What he's got here... uh... Now, there was a reason to ask this question. For none would ever think of Christ. Well, not he. He was put to death <laughs> and put in a grave and a great stone upon him. Not three days since. Here he is. Yeah. <laughs> Here he is. Who would have thought as, it? When we take Jesus's ministry as recorded in the New Testament and we take it back and re-look at it through the lens of the one who speaks righteousness. We begin to see Jesus as, and these are Andrew's points here through his sermon, he is the, his word is truth. (laughs) He is known by his word. He is the word who was in the beginning. He is a priest forever whose lips preserve knowledge. That's Malachi 2, 7 through 9. He offers righteousness through his preaching. And by his speaking, we receive knowledge of his truth against error. Amen. So if we, we as Christians know our Old Testament, and when we hear this passage, I'm the one who speaks righteousness, and then we take this title, the one who speaks in righteousness and sees Jesus, now you start really understanding not only the emphasis of him being called the word and the truth, but his whole ministry of speaking and telling stories just to bring people into truth. And then the, the second title, of course, is the one mighty to save. And that one, we're always, that one we're, we're good at, I think, in this day and age. <laughs> yeah. We like to pretend like righteousness and holiness and sanctification don't exist until heaven. So we, we need that. And we'll always emphasize mighty to save over the former, but nevertheless, both are there. He, his work is salvation. He is known by his deeds. As Jesus, he saves his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. He is king as the Messiah and prince of Daniel, Daniel 9.25-26. He offers salvation through suffering, Isaiah 53.5. And by his saving... We receive the power of grace against sin and saved from sin's sequel. That is, 
spiritual Edom and Basra. I love that idea of Sin's sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also, and I don't know if you mentioned, if you read all, uh, but going back to speaking, uh, receive knowledge of his truth against error. Yeah. And uh, the church today, we need to be so careful of that because you hear a lot of things that's not against error. <laughs> well, we, we live in a day, I mean, the church used to be known as people of the book. We don't exactly have a plethora of believers who are people of the book anymore. Right. I still remember the day, probably a good thing they closed, the Lifeway stores. <laughs> I'm at Lifeway one day, and the lady there says, hey, do you want to order the newest Jesus film that's coming out? <laughs> I was like, I'll just read the Bible. And I'm like, well, that sounds legalistic. What was her response? That was her response? Yeah, she's like, it just sounds legalistic to read the Bible. And to, to imagine that truth is contained there. That, that like, reminds, and that's from a Christian bookstore. That, that reminds me of an article. It was just written probably three or four years ago about all the closures of the Christian bookstores. And uh, the, the, basis of the, the basis of the article was nothing's ever been greater for the traditional church. <laughs> <laughs> Legalistic. Yeah. I mean, we... Scripture bears witness to truth. It bears witness to where we're headed. And we, the church, like the world around us, starts living in these little vacuums that are created to protect us from such offensive material. (laughs) I mean, you read some of the old preachers, maybe not as old as Andrews, but some of the beginning of the Protestant preachers. I still remember a Charles Spurgeon sermon where he turns against, you know, the unbelieving visitors at his church and he says it's not good enough for you just to visit here like <laughs> you got to realize that you are in open rebellion against the king of kings and lord of lords by the way you're living and the way you're thinking do you think he's going to give you a pat on the back when you show up because you showed up you're an enemy you have to repent um, you have to change your ways and today our, our churches get designed in oh saying, gosh. oh, no, we're already... You never say that. <laughs> you know, we are... We're perfect in of ourselves. I mean, don't you see how pretty people we are? And, like... It's like, that's not what Scripture's saying. Uh, I don't see pretty. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and, they, and, then, and as soon as you start talking about personal sin and personal inadequacies, instead of talking about speaking righteousness, we automatically switch over to mighty to save. Oh, Jesus did everything. I don't have to do a thing. Right. I'm just sitting back and waiting. Jesus is my bud. I mean, you know. And so if anything, for the crazy world we're living in now, I don't even care about the world. It's the church in the world. Um, These two offices kind of need to be presented equally. I mean, we've... How about you... You come from a solid Bible background, so I love it. I know they got, we all got our issues in Christ's church. I got issues, you got issues, all God's children got issues. But we got to admit that you coming from that, like the primitive Baptist world, I mean, that's a strength of the church because they're, I mean, they're serious about the Bible. And yet, that is a minority in the church as a whole. And it's got to come back. And like that tradition, like every other tradition, we start thinking our tradition is the primary prism to read scripture through. 
Mm-hmm. And then we start justifying our own. We try to cover up our issues by saying, well, at least we're in the true church. And that's Rome to primitive Baptists alike. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're the true church. It'll be okay. Well, Are you reading this in the Bible? You know, and that's one of the things about being part of the Anglican Church. We're not fearful of the very intelligent questioning things of Scripture because the Bible will reveal itself. You know, the church has defined itself over 2,000 years. And I guarantee you there's been a lot smarter people than us that have done it before. And uh, uh, to trash at... Uh, I don't know if you've got... Have you gotten to the part about the priest's lips? Well, yeah, that was... Um, Did you already do that? That is, as Andrews, um, he's bringing that image out of Malachi 2, 7 through 9. You're really liking Malachi today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know? it's a ministry of the church. We don't get to... The church doesn't get to define herself or her mission. She is the body of Christ, which means she has to do as Christ did and does. Mm -hmm. And part of her ministry is preserving knowledge Knowledge. through presenting the truth, not the current trends or even the trends of the 16th century. I mean, I've been part of Presbyterian churches that are just trying to reestablish the 16th century here in the 21st century. And I'm like, I don't think that's the goal. Um, At least it was better than... We've been reading yeah, the well, Crusades. Well, we've got... <laughs> oh, my God. We, we, we got a little off track in those years. Um, <laughs> Just a tad off. <laughs> but there's... It's one of the things I loved, and it blew my mind when um, Douglas Wilson, the Presbyterian in Idaho, says, we're not a Reformed church. We are a reforming church. Like, we are always constantly being transformed or reformed into the image of what's presented in Scripture. Right. We're not being... We don't have this package that was produced back in the 16th century, and we're trying to reestablish that. But we are re, like we take the spirit that formed that in the 16th century and apply it to our day so that we likewise are reformed around Scripture. And But his problem was, as we are today, many people just say, oh, man... Ancelot Andrews got it. Let's just do exactly as Andrew, you know, Andrews did. Uh, well, like, but you're talking about being reformed and stuff. I know when he was arguing with, I forgot the cardinal's name, with the Roman church, he says, we're not the ones reforming anything. You guys are the one reforming yeah. everything. You know, we just want to go back to where we were. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, but I like that, the priest's lips to preserve knowledge. Yeah. Uh, we're not afraid of knowledge. Bring it on. That's it. We know the one speaking is the one who speaks righteousness and is mighty to save. And as the one mighty to save, able to both destroy threats and extend mercy, he does so to those he speaks righteousness to. And they hear him and don't return to folly. That is who we know is speaking. Now what... What does he have to say once he shows up and has told us who he is? Why are you covered in red? And this is where I hinted at earlier. This article or journal entry that this is from the Journal for the Study of the Old Testament Supplement Series 141. And this is 1993. So recent, fairly. 
And it was there that I first discovered that this image in Isaiah 63, you know, when it says that he's come back marching, uh, marching in the greatness of his strength um, is what the ESV has. And Lancelot Andrews has traveling in the greatness of his strength. Of his strength. The verb there, actually, everywhere else it is used, is used as in he does so bowed down, stooping, and sprawled. That's just how the Hebrew word is used. And we translate it as marching. And Andrews, without getting into a I'm smarter than you and here's what the (laughs) Bible actually says, takes this passage and realizing that two things are going on, it's not just one wine press that he's been in. There's two. There is the first wine press of the Passion. The Passion. That had the Savior bowed down, stooping, and sprawled out. He's the grapes. Yeah. <laughs> but yet we know that there's a second part of his wine press. Because he didn't stay Easter Day. He didn't stay dead. And so therefore, this is where this other meaning comes forward and this greatness of his strength. But there is in this article by John Sawyer. The article is titled Radical Images of Yahweh and Isaiah 63. And this was the best thing I've ever discovered as of 1993. And then you find out that Andrews knew it back in the 1600s. (laughs) Smart aleck. Yeah. (laughs) This section, when you look at it grammatically and in its biblical languages, the poetry here portrays Yahweh not as a triumphant, gloating warrior swaggering back from battle, unmoved by the enormity of what he has had to do, but as a tired and blood-stained, barely recognizable as someone who knows what it is to suffer. And that image, while it's there in its poetry, Andrews geniusly maintains that, without ever mentioning a Hebrew word, because I personally, I hate all preachers that says, well, you know, in the Greek, the word actually. And it's like, is this about the book or about how smart you are? Andrews just says, scripture is painting a picture and here is part of the picture you should see. He's not. He is and is not coming back with like strutting his stuff. He, he's coming back in his own blood too. And it, So that first press and the second press is, personally, I think, brilliant. Well, he's got here, uh, Christ is the true vine, he saith in himself, to make wine of him, he and the clusters he bear must be pressed. So he was three shrewd strains they gave him. One was in Gethsemane that made him sweat blood, the wine or blood. Another was in the judgment at Gabbatha, which made the blood run forth uh, at his head and with the thorns out of his whole body with scourges out of his hands, feet, and nail with nails. And the last strain was Gagatha, where he was so pressed that they pressed his very soul out of his body and outran blood and water both. And it goes on here, St. Augustine, out came both sacraments, the twin sacraments of the church. Yeah. It's 
again, it's, it's brilliant there. That's and this just, is part of the reading of Scripture that's difficult because there are these nuances. But when we read, be it King James or ESV, we're sitting there with our Bible trying to figure out what it means, like an Ethiopian eunuch going, huh? <laughs> um, it says, so who is this? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. You go, well, where do you get the idea that he's stricken, smitten, and afflicted? Right. And it's there in the language. And Andrews is just saying, see this picture, and then see that picture fulfilled in Christ in Gethsemane, in the judgment hall with the scourging, and at Golgotha. This is just, I don't know, I think any disciple of Jesus, at the moment that you begin to see these dots align, just go, man, you're good, God. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And then the victory comes that uh, his enemies of Eden lay like so many clusters under his feet. And what's it? Psalm 103. And he cast his shoe over them, set his foot on them, and dashed them to pieces. It just all comes together so and beautifully. And it is in there. And it's just, as we try to learn how to rediscover the scriptures in our own age, this is, I mean, I guess it's two things. It's, it's the need to not dismiss the ages before us, like the patristics, reading things allegorically like this passage. We want to dismiss it because we know they were just not educated enough as us. But two, the need of the biblical languages. I mean, this is part of the ministry. Like, If you want the fullness of the faith which as Anglicans we always brag about having, it's got to be grounded in the Bible as much as it is in history and both brought into our present reality. And Andrews is just saying, here it is. Here's the fullness of Isaiah 63, for example. Talking about the color and the stain, and it's got to twice die. So was Christ twice. Once in his own blood, again in his enemies. Wine press number two. two. When he crushed his enemies, going to the kingdom of death, Edom, and where we were to be led captives, and all the way to hell to smash its gates. Do it, I, baby, do it. I mean, this is, <laughs> the church today celebrates the harrowing of hell. I yeah. mean, and you go, well, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, to the fundamentalist, the person who I always think of like fundamental as someone who doesn't have any fun, and they have way too much damn and not enough mental. So to the fundamentalists, you go, well, where's the verse? Well, it's like, well, there's not really a verse. There's a picture painted here in the Bible, and we see it now fully. If you go to Isaiah 63, for instance, we know that Jesus went to hell, broke down its gates, and came back victorious. And, and we have denominations in the apostles won't even say that descended into hell. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're missing oh, half of this. <laughs> I will have that linked. Um, you just go scroll to the bottom of the notes when this thing's posted. Uh, the biblical language of hell. I would point to Acts 2 at Pentecost when Peter, quoting Psalm 16, where David wrote, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. In hell. And Peter says, uh, David's still dead. He's not talking about himself. He's... <laughs> preaching about Christ and that his soul was not left in hell. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, these actually, that's part that? of this. We, yeah. Yeah. If he never went to hell, you can't say his hell. soul was not left in hell. <laughs> well, we, we, we live in an age where it's everything's just getting collapsed. When our New Testament typically speaks of hell, it's talking about the realities of Gehenna, Sheol, Hades, and Tartarus. Mm-hmm. Now, Jesus will make mention of a place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. Mm-hmm. And... St. John the Divine will reference, you know, that the lakeside resort of the lake of burning fire and sulfur. And so our New Testament, when it says hell, it's not talking about the lake of fire and the second death. It's speaking about other realities present. But we live in an age that's just convoluted all of that. And we go, well, I don't, Jesus couldn't have gone to the lake of fire. <laughs> It doesn't say anything like that. He was going to real places, places of doing real, real, real work. Real work, like <laughs> I mean, when he Peter, I mean, as you guys know, when it talks about Jesus descending to speak to the spirits in prison, that's Tartarus. That's not the lake of fire where they're all cast eventually. It's the present place. It's the deepest part of hell. And our passage, when it says he's coming back from there, it, that's what he's meaning. He didn't go fishing at the lake of fire. He, he went to the place well, of the way, dead. Well, in a way, he was fishing. Yeah, that's true. Um, this is the, and so we just have some collapsed eschatology and cosmology that has led much of the church to say, when you, know, when you say the Nicene Creed, we've got people that are afraid to say the word Catholic. And when you say the Apostles' Creed, we've got people that are afraid to say hell. And it's like, look up the word, people. You'll realize it's not saying what you think it's saying. But, nevertheless. That's where we are. That's where we are. And here is where we talk about Jesus kicking in the gates of hell and taking names. Went to Edom and then straight into Basra. And... All out of bubblegum. What? <laughs> I don't know if I'm familiar with that phrase. I'll have oh, to, never mind. might have to incorporate it. <laughs> Got to add that to the repertoire. All out of bubble gum? Yeah. We'll no. later. <laughs> <laughs> so the second press, he's, he's gone into hell. And with this imagery of two presses, we find the source of the blood that he's marred with. It is both the lamb that was slain but also the blood from the dragon defeated. When we see Jesus, when you talk about being saved by the blood, we got two. Saved by his victory over real living beings and his victory over death, where his own blood was shed. Jesus is both lamb and lion. I think that's what I really liked in this sermon. He started having fun with the imagery. And that he is the lamb slain, wearing his own blood, and he is the lion of Judah, wearing the blood of his enemies. Is that wonderful to hear or what? <laughs> uh, not, not popular today. I'm sure it offends somebody. And then as the passage emphasizes, as we continue reading through Isaiah 63, we see that this lion and lamb accomplished it alone. We know that Jesus was forsaken, even by his disciples and left alone. And it was he alone when he resurrected victoriously. I mean, 
didn't have anybody there to be with him when he resurrected. He came back alone. Yeah. No one in there doing CPR on his body. He came he was back. cool. Yeah. Are you going to talk about the third wine press? That comes in his conclusion. Okay. Before he moves into the third wine press, which I know I've already used the word genius and amazing and... But pretty cool. It's, yeah, pretty, that's the right word. Um, but before he goes into the third wine press that we definitely don't like to talk about in our day and age. <laughs> Some churches do better than others. But the Anglicans, on the other hand, we don't have a lot of Jesus coming back and make sure you're not in the pressing line. Andrew's, although, real Anglican. <laughs> Talked about it all. Tell it all, brother. Uh, but before he gets there, it's Christ did this on our behalf so that we will not be abandoned but resurrected. Jesus doesn't go and die and then go to hell and rise again just to show off how great he is. Look at me. You should bow down and worship me because no one else can do that. He did it so that the same realities can take place in our own lives. Mm -hmm. This This is where the quintessential Lancelot Andrews comes into play where we he constantly talks about the great exchange that's made possible for us because of this work of Christ. He that is most naturally associated with white becomes red in order that we might become white. white. This is going back, I guess it's Athanasius, like that's what I used in the summary. Um, God became man so that man could become like God. Andrews uses that nearly everywhere. And here he is highlighting it. He looks first at his redness, and then he looks at the wine presses themselves. Scarlet is fitting for both titles. As the speaker of righteousness, the one speaking righteousness, the color red is often used of doctors and priests. So, here it is. But then also for the office of mighty to save. The, it is the color of the valiant men in Nahum 2.3. Again, Jesus is kind of amazing on how he fulfills Scripture. And, and he's also amazing how he illumines the minds of his saints to reveal these things. And lo and behold, you turn to Nahum 3 and you go, or 2.3, and you go, huh, how about that? <laughs> um, and then as he moves from seeing the scarlet to understand the exchange, he goes into the wine presses and how that fits into the old titles. <laughs> Only the mighty to save could tread down the enemies. Yet by being pressed himself, those who drink his blood can share in the righteousness he speaks. So it's both offices being fulfilled in these titles, and they're not fulfilled, again, just for us to talk about, but for us to live within. It says, part of our salvation, the the glorification, the theosis, that every believer should be caught up and lost in. May I read something? Yeah. Uh, This is is really heavy. What are you reading, Brian? And this is actually from uh, a lady who spent her life on Andrews, Mary Ann Dorman. And uh, she's gone through all of his sermons. And at the end, (laughs) she's got on that. Uh, today of you will hear his voice while the cup of blessing is held out 
if we will take it, lay hold on both, that we may be accounted worthy to escape in that day from that day in vengeance of it, and may feel the fullness of his saving power in the word engrafted, which is able to save our souls, and in the cup of salvation which is joined with it, and that to our endless joy. Perfect transition into this final wine press. You know, it's right now, every human being living and breathing has the options on the table to either drink from and participate in Christ's victory over death and hell, or sit back and relax and find yourself to be pressed in the final wine press. Um, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Christians in the process of sanctification to the end of glorification are pressed. We're, the flesh is being crushed and we are being made into his image. Jesus says, you can do that or you can be crushed on the last day. And that is the final wine press that is to come. The first two happen so that we can basically escape the third. Right, because you think all the do's and don'ts of Scripture are killing you now? <laughs> Wait till the next one comes. <laughs> um, you, you think sanctification crushes your style now? Wait till the third one. And that's where Andrews brings it in. So there have been two presses of Christ, the one for us and the other for the enemies that have happened, but the third wine press of the day of the Lord is still to come. For us. Those who rest in the first two need not fear the third. Those who hear the voice of the one speaking righteousness and those who accept his cup of blessing while it's extended to them are okay. But there will be a day that the King of kings, Lord of lords, riding on his great horse, still wearing that blood, according to St. John the Divine, will come and remove all the last enemies. And so for those in our own day who are wrapped up in this culture of death, well, you will spend eternity with death if you're not... Get used to it. If you're not repentant and receptive to the work of Jesus, as told in Isaiah 63. You finished? Yeah. The Lord be with you. With <laughs> uh, Dear Lord, we give thanks for this time together to discuss uh, some of the writings and the teachings of an earlier church. Uh, may the church of our day learn from them and help to bring them back to, the, to its original goodness, uh, which our Lord and Savior died for. And he has gone through the first two wine presses and help us to come out white at the end of our third wine press. In that name we do pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>